0: Are you satisfied with your understanding of sustainability? If not, like me. Imagine a journey together. A pluralistic one with innovators, startups, academia, NGO all together looking for solution to the greatest challenge of our time. I'm Samuel Tini and this is the sustainability journey. Welcome to Another episode of our journey today, I have no words even to introduce because our she's a really recognized expert. She has been holding a lot of position on the Bank of England for the Ministry of the Treasury in Italy, and now she's a lead evaluator at the IMF. So I want to welcome Nicoletta Battini. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Samuele. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Nicolette I mean your curriculum is impressive I have even difficulty how to express myself because really you are a recognized expert in finance you have done a lot of work and you also you have edited a book the economics of sustainable foods which is edited by Island Press and IMF Press so really being an expert at such a top level I think you are in the best position For us to understand the problematic that our planet is undergoing and even the future of our species, it's really now fighting for its survival. And we know there's planetary boundaries and everything. But, you know, before that, I want to ask you, you know, which is your sustainability journey? Who is Nicoletta? So if you can briefly describe yourself. Thank you.
1: As you rightly pointed out, Samuel, I'm an economist and I've been an economist throughout my professional career. And... um, I've worked in various institutions, but uh, lately, meaning almost the last 18 years, 19 years, I've been at the IMF, and as you know, we work on country as well as on uh, the world, um, doing surveillance of economies in line with our uh, articles of of the IMF treaty. And as an economist, I picked up during my work on the United States, in particular Europe and Latin American countries, a strong link between fiscal spending fiscal lack of sustainability, so the inability of government to pay its obligations, either present or future, and wrong diets. Because of course, you know, sick people that develop and materialize dietary risk factors can and often do uh, get into pathologies, which uh, are not life-threatening immediately sometimes, but they're very expensive for, uh, you know, health systems. And that's very, very visible, tangible in the data. And it's a big problem big headache for a fiscal fiscal spending and ministers of finances around the world. It's a relatively new phenomenon. It's in advanced economies, you know, it's uh, happened, started being tangible after the eighties and nineties in lots of emerging market countries after 2000, when incomes rose and people shifted diets towards the Western diet. After finding this, I felt led, inverted commas, to more readings and documentaries because this was really interesting, I thought. And for those who watched this movie, I want to mention a a kid's movie. I I recommend it highly to adults too. I watched with my kids, um, Disney's Pixar's uh, Brave so in that movie, there's, uh, of course, the protagonist is uh, this girl, Merida, and she's riding at some point in the movie in the beginning through the forest, looking to change her fate, almost like I was doing when I got into this. And she starts seeing some tiny blue lights, they call them the, the will-o'-the-wisp fairies, that form a path beckoning her to follow them. And really, that's what happened to me. I started to go down the rabbit hole uh, and the story on you know health and diets, and I be- and fiscal spending, and I became aware of through my personal research uh, of the multiple links between food systems and not just public finance and public debt, but also private debt, jobs, productivity, asset prices, all variables that uh, are of maximum interest to economists and are of maximum macroeconomic relevance. And What I learned importantly was the the pivotal role that food systems play, not just on on health trends and health spending, and employment and fiscal houses, but also on climate change and biological diversity. And that opened yet another door for me because I'm, I'm passionate for nature and I'm in love with the planet and animals and the relationship between communities and nature. And so this pushed me in the end to write a first paper to which I gave this the inspiring title, Five Birds with One Stone. And basically for economists. There, there I discussed how by fixing food systems, and making them nature positive, we could fix at once, I say in the paper, five major conundrums of our economies that afflict our economies, both nationally and globally, and both in advanced economies and in emerging market and low-income countries. And these are environmental degradation, which includes, of course, climate change and biodiversity loss, jobs and income inequality, malnutrition and food insecurity, rural exodus and urbanization, and risks to public health. And then moved on to more research on green finance to, you know, to help this transition that I thought were necessary. And as you said, this culminated in the production of, of this book, The Economics of Sustainable Food, which came out in June this year. So here's a, you know, like a, a 30,000 feet Nicoleta's journey in food system
0: transitions. Amazing journey. I really like how we have this you, Eureka moment, you know, and then I, I like how we have your picture with Brave, which I just seen even with my daughter. So it's really interesting. I, and I really like the five birds with one son. So, you know, which are the solution? Because we know that food system, as it is one of the highest polluters we have discussed. And then I like the link, the health and the economy. So which are the economic of the sustainable food? How we can change the way we produce? I liked one one sentence from your book that we depend on food but foods depends on nature so i really liked one extra from your book because that sentence is really i think key on how we, we think of of our system
1: right so maybe i should start and uh, take a step back and tell you what is the problem with sustainable food you know f- you know from a production and demand so supply and demand point of view which is the macroeconomic context and then we can move on to the solution. So I think that you know whoever is uh, listening to this uh, can understand you know w- what is the issue. You know, look, somehow uh, if you think back at their evolution, it's hard to understand why current food systems are under attack. For early humans, as we know, life was no picnic. One point eight million years ago, our ancestors ate uh, ferna in wetlands, crustaceans, and slugs. For proteins and and scavenging on carcasses left over by competing carnivores was with the hominis equivalent of a happy meal <laughs> So after farming became established wildly some seven thousand years ago, not long ago, feeding got much easier of course but for centuries agriculture remained, we could define as a a low productivity affair dominated by small family-owned farms raising diversified crops and livestock the music changed abruptly around 1950 that's after the the end of the second world war as countries and governments were eager to shrug off the traumas of food insecurity that developed during the war the developed nations in particular began pouring vast amounts of money into farmers pockets to foster the adoption of machinery of synthetic fertilizers, herbicides, pesticides, and genetic manipulation. And uh, products and practices, if you know the history, they're often directly repurposed from military applications. So a lot of the pesticides and herbicides uh, were used uh, for against uh, civilians during you know, Nazi Germany, for example, or in the course of the war on various fronts. Now, as a result of this, you know, um, very hands-on, chemical, energy-intensive approach, yields multiplied, and farming and food prices tanked. And Earth was, you know, in a few years, successfully transformed into a giant and cheap food vending machine. In retrospect, and we know that now, we've been it for a while, but now it's really evident, turning up the dial on natural Processes to produce food industrially was clever because you produce a lot of food really fast, but it, it wasn't smart because uh, policies aimed at increasing the production of meat, dairy, and eggs uh, eventually led to the almost complete replacement of the planet's natural wildlife with farmed animals. Uh, now there's only 4% of wildlife left, and we humans are about 30. And 36 uh, percent and uh, a- farmed animals make uh, you know something in the order of 60 to 64 percent of uh, you know all animals. So four percent left and declining. And to make this happen, this industrialization of food systems, not just the animals, but entire ecosystems were brought to the verge of biological collapse through deforestation, soil degradation, the overpumping of non renewable aquifers all over the world, and the contamination of waterways and oceans. So, at 10 times the human population, farmed animals are on land are so many now that even if we stop burning fossil fuels tomorrow, so imagine we, we just managed to stop fossil fuels tomorrow and are burning them, which of course is impossible. Food emission is impossible. But if we manage to tomorrow, food emissions on their own would push us two to three times over our 1.5 Celsius target by 2100 and make us really miss our two Celsius target. And at, at the same time, factory farms and our constant interference with wildlife uh, for food have led to you know an escalation of emerging zoonosis and are making antibiotics ineffective. So uh, we're seeing COVID now. We don't know the origin of COVID. You know, there's a lot of debate about that, but we do know that a lot of the previous uh, zoonoses came from uh, farmed animals uh, operations. We have, you know, direct knowledge of that, and then a bunch of papers of those. So including all the influences, and many of those uh, big influences, including the Spanish flu and so forth, and the you know, 2009 flus, H1N1, H5N1, and so forth. Worst of all, and here's the human perspective, today's highly subsidized food systems centered on animal products leave billions of people, and typically those with lower incomes, but not all, like chronically malnourished, sick with obesity, diabetes, cancer, cardiovascular diseases that compromise also their immune health, because these diets are that they push with low prices through these systems are overparteic and hypercaloric, and they cause these diseases, and that's scientifically known and proven now. Most people lost to COVID-19 had one of these morbidities, and they still do, independently uh, you know, of the vaccination. If you look at some of the um, uh, statistical data from countries that have uh, vaccination programs, you see that you know, even vaccines struggle uh, to defend those that have these pathologies, and in fact, they remain the pathologies that actually are highly correlated uh, with uh, high mortality rates. This is, however, is not a poor country problem. This is a problem of of all countries. And just a data point, data point here: in 2019, 35 million people experienced hunger in the United States, according to the USDA. Experienced hunger. This is a very serious level of impact on a a very advanced economy while in mexico which is is the second most obese country in the world despite the huge income difference with the united states and there are huge huge economic costs to all this somewhere a huge huge cost because chronically ill people are both less employable and productive and they tend to retire earlier And this leads to lost income and soaring public and private debt. We we said this at the beginning. At the same time, food systems are neither inclusive nor supportive of smallholders because production is now heavily concentrated and is heavily globalized and is heavily financialized with just a handful of dominant players that manage the world's entire seeds, grains, and livestock markets. And so the concern is that agri-food companies have become too big to feed humanity sustainably, they're too big to operate on equitable terms with other food system actors, and they're too big to deliver on the types of innovations that we need. And these problems, I finish here on on the context, Um, you know, really they're bound to get worse, unfortunately, as food supply dwindles under the, um, you know, the stranglehold of rising temperatures and water scarcity and biodiversity loss and uh, food demand continues to rise with population growth and actually shifts up the food chain in emerging market countries. So if you look at prices of land or price of food, you know, you see immediately that we are now at the wall and that they can only go up further. And that cuts off, you know, the accessibility, affordability of food for the poor. But it's becoming a problem in inflation globally. And uh, that problem is growing. So
0: thank you for this Really grim picture, but also now we we can turn to the solution because when you were talking, I see also a lot that uh, sometimes we feel also in Africa and the work and and the problems we have. And I liked a lot the part that you discussed, you know, the health problem, the debt, and then also the social impact of food system to all the chain and especially impacting the lives of people. So now, Nicolette, I want to ask you, which is the solution? You know, since you are the expert, since you are the one that have studied this in depth for all your uh, life. How we can turn the tide and really also, as you say, go towards a more regener- regenerative agriculture and turn the tide against these uh, trends.
1: Well, that's why you know I, I think it's important to talk about this because there's some good news. There's uh, you know there's a silver lining here, and the good news is that it's not too late um, to address the food systems and avoid a humanitarian and planetary catastrophe, but. But not just that, if we do, as I you know pointed out in the book and in other articles, if we do get a hands at fixing these food systems, we can get a bunch of co-benefits, which are you know lift people from poverty, saving the environment, uh, helping people you know have nutrition, having people have food, um, you know creating jobs and so forth. So in, in short, I think that if we look ahead now, a few issues will be more important for individual prosperity and the global economy than the way we produce our food and what food we eat. So adopting policy measures to move away from current methods of industrial agriculture and fishing and make them sustainable, healthy, safe. You know, it, I, I don't repeat it enough. It's a tremendous opportunity for global policymakers to make a difference across a range of issues in many people's lives around the globe. This is a solution that's going to benefit everybody in any country from China to the United States, to African countries, poorer countries, you know, countries of middle income and any kind. I have identified three sort of things that need to be done uh, to, uh, you know, address uh, successfully these problems. And I think... The first solution, obviously, is to is to have uh, policymakers understand the public health, economic, and environmental trade-offs between using land and seafood for production and they use for other competing activities: urban, extractive, industrial, recreation, conservation. Land is, you know, disproportionately distributed to agriculture. And that creates a lot of other issues. You know, land cannot be conserved. You know, the use of land and, and water that comes with it is, is completely disproportionately attributed to, to agriculture. So the culprit here and the, the elephant in the room is animal agriculture. Because animals by you know, especially large animals or high-mitting animals like cows, uh, but also pigs to some extent. They, of course, uh, need a lot of food to exist. And even if they have short life cycle, because there's slaughtered, you know, usually a very young age, you know, they continuously consume water and, and grain. And all that water and grain needs to be produced. Even if we confine the animals in confined operations and they don't occupy land themselves, land has to be devoted to, you know, giving them food. So the number one thing to do scientifically, and this is very clear from science, is to reduce the number of livestock that we have globally. And there are some countries that have more than others, and you know, they're top exporters and of course top producers. And once we manage to do that, that would tremendously, you know, um, improve not just the emissions, but deforestation, ecosystem conservation, water, scarcity issues, as well as you know, the Diseases we're talking about, and by reducing production, you naturally have higher prices control the equilibrium that should exist between recommended diets by the WHO and so forth. And so, what's healthy for people and the supply that you know uh, meets that demand? Meat is very cheap because it's produced on land which is you know either grabbed in countries that you know have low land tenure or where you can go and and buy enormous pieces of pristine forest and fold down uh, at no cost, you know, that cheap meat ends up being cheap meat at the grocery store and people eat more of it than they should. And that has a cascading of problem from health to fiscal to, as we said, pensions to climate and so forth. So so the first thing is to redress animal agriculture and, and doing that requires stopping subsidizing intensive animal agriculture. So in the book, I explain exactly how that should be done. You know, we pour a ton of money into this uh, wrong uh, and distracting way of farming, which is also inhumane for the animals. It's inhumane for the workers in these facilities uh, and it's dangerous for the rest of the population because of the zoonosis and the antibiotic resistance. So. I co-authored uh, a report called the "The Multi-Billion uh, Opportunity" with the UNEP, FAO, and UNDP that came out in September. There, we make a case for repurposing these subsidies away from the, the destructive methods—not just animal farming, but also animal farming and the, you know, the crops that are mechanically industrially produced, mostly to feed these animals. Uh, so agriculture to core, co- what is called conventional agriculture, chemical agriculture, and put them into polyculture and uh, regenerative agriculture and fishing and all the activities that, of course, are nature positive. And they enable us to produce nutritious food for all without impacting the planet and also for future generations. So that's, that's number one is this um, is this action on, on livestock Uh, The the number two action is the shift, which can be a combination of regulatory, but also requires, you know, uh, financial help, training and regulatory, you know, support from governments to farmers from, you know, high chemical, high fossil fuel agriculture. Towards more organic or nature-positive agriculture that attains to everything, not just uh, you know the feed that goes into animals, uh, but also you know fruit and things that we eat as humans, because we know that these practices are basically creating tremendous trade-offs for biodiversity. Uh, they are emitting enormous amount of you know greenhouse gases and through transportation, but also the same actual farming, the farming itself, which is highly mechanized, requires, you know, consistent amounts of fossil fuels. It makes so that um, production is concentrated in part of the world and that needs to be transported to other parts of the world instead of being locally oriented. And so just an example on commercial fishing, commercial fishing is only possible because government subsidized uh, marine diesel. It wouldn't be profitable to go and you know, uh, bring a boat in the middle of the ocean and then drive it back. If there wasn't subsidies to marine diesel, and the fact that it's cheap and almost is subsidized and supported to do these activities means that, you know, fleets are going more and more into high seas uh, to trawl and destroy ecosystems that are now on the brink of extinction and collapse. So, government policies are extremely important in correcting this and. It's not just what they should do; it's what they shouldn't do, what they should stop doing. And we're not saying it should pull out the, you know, the subsidies. That we being said here is that the subsidies should be repurposed, so they're not taken out of the economy. They should be repurposed to the right activities. And you know, if commercial fishers and commercial conventional, you know, farmers and intensive farmers continue to be able to exist without someone, you know, picking up the bills of their you know, externalities on people and planet, you know, um, that would be a market equilibrium, but we need to allow that market equilibrium to be formed. We need to create a level playing field between the nature positive farming and fishing and the, the not nature positive or the nature negative farming and fishing. And then consumers are ready to jump on the wagon. And many have, especially, you know, the millennials and Generation Z are ready to jump on the help the planet, help myself wagon we need to align the policies there uh, that is obviously uh, very important the number 3 you know step we have to work also on diets which is uh, an area which is not supply but is is demand and diets it's um, is tricky but it also isn't people want to be healthy people want to eat nutritious food they want to eat Savory food they want to be able to access food that is transparently, you know, originated and that is um, you know is good for the kids and so forth. And and that shift that's nudging from policy goes through a number of steps and they all have to be activated at the same time. One, of course, is education from a very early age, but there's also the part and where you know schools can have a part, but also you know, parents, but there's also the aspect of health systems. So health systems traditionally in the last, you know, 50 to 70 years have become defensive medicine where you feel sick and then you go to the doctor and they, you know, they're gonna give you a pill or they're gonna suggest surgery. At that point, obviously, often it's it's late. You now have a disease which has had the time to develop. What we're saying here is that by choosing the right lifestyle, which, predominantly include, of course, diets. We can prevent uh, the majority of the non-communicable diseases, which are the number one cause of death in advanced economies, but increasingly so also in the rest of the world. And um, how do you shift a health system from being purely defensive to being you know preventive as well? Well, there's a number of changes, including again from education. Only one percent of curricula medical schools around the world is in nutrition that would have to go up quite substantially. There's, um, you know, when patients are attended in hospitals on primary care to secondary and tertiary care, there's very little attention to nutrition. You could introduce nutrition scorecards in the clinical records of patients and that, that would help through also studies of nutrigenomic and other things to get a more tailored and effective, you know, type of medicine. But of course, there's taxes and subsidies too, right? So you can work on giving a, a price to those who, you know, care about their health through the right dietary choices. And, you know, using taxes and subsidies as economists do to incentivize the right behavior is going to help tremendously in, in shifting that behavior, you know, and getting people to pick the right item at the grocery store, and not just being, uh, following price and convenience and taste, which often is, the, uh, you know, mystified by a number of techniques you know, of the industry. So here we have you know, three big directions of action that can be taken, and the book details the policies that are needed. A fourth one that I would add and throw there, just uh, very important, is conservation. So conservation is you know, uh, another way to use land. We know that if we can reduce livestock, uh, by also having the people choosing not too heavy skewed animal protein diets, we can release back into the wild, tremendous amount of land. Think about it, if we all went vegan, just making a very absurd hypothesis, if we all stop eating animal products, we could release back into the wild 75% of all the land that is now farmed. So that would absorb tremendous amount of emissions. It would allow ecosystem to regenerate. And it would rebalance, you know, the water cycle, and so you can now see how beneficial this all could be. We wouldn't have to go into uh, the terrific transition, or even this science fiction, uh, sucking away carbon dioxide from the atmosphere by, you know, throwing stuff up in the air or, or doing other strange things that are, you know, potentially very
0: risky. Wow, that is a uh, four actionable points. I love the one of conservation. No, oh, they said the biodiversity. We need at least thirty percent of the land no preserve and conserve The declaration of Cancun and sixty five percent. It's a lot. One thing I put up in also public procurement. I think public procurement can play a big role in nudging and the spending and everything. Also to, to get the diets in school because that is also to, as you said, to le- to play the level field with nature positive and the nature negative, you know, techniques and agriculture. We need more nature positive. For us, it was a lesson. You know, it's, it's really impressive and, and a lot of food for thought. Let me ask you, you know, a question. You know, some people they might ask: Is it, are the bugs making sense in this? You know, you're an economist. Does it have a business case? Is it the money that we are putting there, the spending that we are putting for your hypothesis, really worth it, or no? And what is your research I mean really showing us?
1: Well, I mean, the, there is a tremendous appetite now for investment in. Uh nature positive activities from private sector banks and um, if you look at the return of uh, indices in the stock market that are you know real green indices like there's um, one which is for example i was just looking it's a, like a vegan and fossil fuel free index they tend to have uh, much higher returns than the standard you know stock market index because there's a there's a rush towards a green green investment so on one side, it's financially profitable, I think, to invest in these things. and that will be always more and more because as the planet uh, you know uh, slips into this unstable uh, equilibria, you know, people will be more worried and they'll be more willing to try to help the planet not go there. And uh, one way people act on this is through their investments. but also, People want to know more about the big companies. They're put under bigger scrutiny because they're seen as they're responsible of what's happening. And and these companies are eager to, you know, to wash their facade with investments. And often these investments are uh, genuinely, you know, uh, nature positive. So there is a supply of funds. In terms of returns, I've, with some colleagues, we've just, publishing in ecological economics It's just coming out now. It's just been accepted, finally, completely accepted a paper that shows that uh, every dollar that is spent on, for example, this conventional uh, heavy machinery, uh, chemical uh, agriculture returns uh, much less than a dollar. So money is basically lost uh, by government, not just creating all these bad things we said. But if you take that dollar and you put it, for example, on conservation, because conservation creates, you know, environments rich of jobs and pushes ecotourism in many areas of the world, that dollar becomes five, six, seven in the course of the years. And so it's definitely an investment worth doing from a pure cynical economic point of view. It's an investment worth doing financially because that's the direction of not just the price of carbon but the price of nature. And uh, at the same time, I think it's the right thing to do because we are not seeing now the economic damages of our action on of this type of food systems but most of us unfortunately experience that at least in life which you know being healthy is priceless so it's an investment in ourselves but also you know we will see it on economies in not too distant future and that we'll be increasingly paying the price of not having acted soon enough, and not having been bold enough, and you know, with this action. So I think, for at least four reasons I gave you, it's a worthwhile investment and one that you know uh, we we should seriously think about doing right now. Start doing right now.
0: Thank you, Nicoletta. I Means that's been a call for action for everybody that is listening. We are finishing our episode. I think you have given us. A lot of insightful points and a lot of food for thought. Usually we conclude our episode with a message for the audience. I think what, what is Nicoletta wants to tell the people? And I think it really, and then it's good, you know, also, you know, what, what really you want to share uh, from your experience with, to the people that are listening to us and how, how maybe they can act also.
1: You know, the reflection I'd like to offer is that food systems are at the crossroad of human, animal, economic, and environmental health. And um, by prioritizing food system reforms in our plans as, you know, individuals, but also as uh, as governments, we can bring the needed energy to the global economy, which, you know, after this pandemic we all desperately need but also you know great strides to the un sustainable development goals and the paris climate agreement agendas i usually say you know that economic health is you know climate health is human health is animal health is nature health so we cannot disconnect these planes and i think thinking about food systems would have to be in my view one of the top priorities of humanity in the coming years.
0: Thank you so much Nicoletta for this wonderful episode. It's, it's really has been insightful and, and a great lesson even for me because you have given us reasons and it also is a strong call for action, for for Thank you so much for your time and for being with us. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, so much.
0: Take care. Are you satisfied after this wonderful episode? Let's continue together our sustainability journey.